what's going on? How y'all doing out there? Man, it feels so good to be back with you guys again this week. This is TJ with another episode of The Soapbox. And man, I'm telling you, I got an episode for you guys today. I just want to thank you so much for all of the love and support that you guys have shown. This is season two, so you know we're doing things a little bit differently. So today, we got a cool interview with a great guest. So if nothing else, sit back and enjoy the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, like I said, this is season two. And of course, we're doing things a little differently this season. We've got a dynamic interview today with none other than Dr. Marvella Bowman. So sit back, relax, enjoy the episode. I'm sure you're going to get so much information. So just enjoy. All right, so we are here today with Dr. Bowman. Dr. Bowman, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It is a pleasure to be here talking with you today. This is actually the first interview of The Soapbox, and I feel really privileged to be talking to you. You are one of the brightest minds that I know. And I just want to pick your brain today and get some information that we can push out to my audience so that they can maybe have a better understanding of mental health and how it is affecting society as as a whole. So I just want to start off giving you the floor. Uh, Can you introduce yourself? And you don't have to hold back because I know you got books and all (laughs) kinds of stuff. Um, So just tell everybody who you are and what you are all about. All righty. So my name is Dr. Marvella Bowman. And just to clarify, I'm a doctor of psychology. Uh, I have my PhD in clinical psychology. I'm uh, licensed to practice in the states of New York and North Carolina. Uh, currently, I function as a uh, psychological services coordinator at a prison. And uh, over the years, I've done quite a few different things. Uh, but I've been in this role for uh, about four years, five total in adult prisons. I have history working in residential treatment facilities for teenage girls, uh, juvenile det- detention centers uh, for males, uh, young adult males. I, I I was planning to work with children uh, for the remainder of my life. Children and adolescents was my focus in grad school, but uh, moved down to North Carolina some years ago and ended up in the prison system. So it's been an interesting twist and turn. Um, Otherwise, uh, there's a lot of different things about me. Fun facts. I guess I could say I love to dance, been dancing since I was young, Um, dance in the church setting, a liturgical dance. Haven't done so in quite some time, but, you know, the pandemic put up kibosh on some things. But um, in addition to that, love volunteering in my local church. And um, I actually do have a book of devotionals that's available called Content Consistent and Conformed, which is available on Amazon. So that's just a little bit about me. I'm sure we can uh, get into more and may discuss a few more aspects of who I am and what I've done as time goes on, as I answer uh, some of the questions raised. And hopefully uh, this will be an ongoing thing where I can answer questions maybe that your audience may have. Oh, definitely. Um, I'm definitely going to be 
calling on you and reaching out to you as I get more questions from people that are interested in things. Uh, but just starting out, because ultimately I know that you've probably been through a lot as a uh, mental health uh, service worker in the world. Why did you start? Like, what made you decide to get into this field? Well, it's actually a very interesting uh, kind of roundabout story. So initially, when I went to um, undergraduate uh, for college, my intention was to become a lawyer. So not a big turn there where going into the prison system. But I absolutely did not think uh, that was not initially what I thought I would be doing. Um, I ended up choosing psychology as a major just because I had a general interest in it. Um, when I first got to the school and needed to register for classes, it was very difficult as a freshman to get any criminal justice classes. So uh, the advisor said, you know what, just take some classes that you think you would perform well in, get your grades up, and then you can switch over. So I ended up double majoring in psychology and English. I had gone into college with a couple of uh, English credits. So I was like, ah, that's easy. I can finish that one early. And then I can use up the other space with uh, criminal justice credits. But after a year of uh, psychology, that became my uh, greater interest. So from, I think I would say, sophomore year on, I kind of just stuck to uh, the mental health aspect. And in undergraduate, I was thinking I would become a professor, more so thinking of doing research. So that was my thought process in studying psychology, kind of just tripped into it. And then uh, I had a very different view of what my career would be like. But then while in grad school, I got a chance to do some practice with uh, folks in the community. And then, um, you know, internship is where I really fell in love with uh, the practice end of things. I was uh, working for a year in a psychiatric ward for uh, kids and teenagers. And that's where I really fell in love with doing therapy. So ended up saying, hmm, I think I'm going to change gears right now and uh, move into focusing on therapeutic work. So that's kind of how I tripped and fell into mental health. <laughs> well, and, and that's amazing. So how did you end up in the prison system? <laughs> <laughs> Literally. So when I moved down to, so I always had an interest in problematic behaviors in youth, like my, the research questions that I evaluated when I thought I was going to be a research professor, that lean, um, was also always trying to answer the question of what leads to delinquent behavior, what leads to problem behaviors. Um, and actually, my specific interest was looking at ethnic differences in those qualities. Like, was there anything about different cultures that was protective against going into those types of behavior? So I was always interested in you know, problems, like people that had problems and had trouble with uh, not necessarily the legal system, but at the time just maybe didn't do so well in school or didn't perform up to expectations. Um, so ending up in the prison, it wasn't that far of a stretch, but it wasn't what I anticipated. When I moved down to North Carolina, when I was searching for work with uh, adolescents was my favorite group to work with, um, I couldn't find anything that had availability. And I think what tends to happen in those fields, people stay there. <laughs> now, in the prison <laughs> system, as you know, people don't necessarily stay there. There's a lot of turnover. So um, it was it was pretty easy to get a job. Um, but I think not. A, it's not for everybody. Definitely not for everybody. And so I, I actually found just a niche here. I enjoy it. I enjoy the work. It's interesting. Never a dull day. Um, so, you know, that's where I've stayed. Well, that's amazing. 
you're absolutely 100% correct. The prison system is not for everybody. So no matter what your job is, uh, it's not for everybody, but it's amazing. So do you have like any other ambitions besides this? I mean, I'm not saying that uh, what you have done so far um, clearly cannot be where you want to cap out at. Because uh, I've heard about your book. I've actually uh, seen your book. Um, I know that there is more goals that you have in mind. So what else do you have that you want to reach for? Yes, well, definitely I have, I'm very happy and satisfied in the kind of work that I do. I would like to potentially and hopefully promote in the system and make more of an impact on the administrative end as time goes on. Um, So, you know, that's something I look towards in the future as far as in the prison system. But outside of the prison system, um, I definitely have interest in uh, helping out and educating people in the church setting about mental health issues and increasing awareness about the problems that can happen, even if you do believe in Jesus and God, um, that you can still have mental health issues that require uh, treatment. And uh, so there's an aspect of what I want to do. Um, I technically created the business, uh, Marvella A. Bowman Mind and Body, and everybody kind of just assumed it was going to be private practice. I really don't have a great desire for private practice in that way where one-on-one therapy would be the goal. I think I would like to more so focus on you know, providing presentations or consultation to people with and with a specific uh, interest in the church and the, the body of Christ. So that was the body that I was referring to in uh, the name of my business, uh, just kind of making that connection between our mental health and our belief system and also intertwining the aspects of movement ministry and how that can be helpful in, in just increasing relationship with uh, the Lord, as well as being therapeutic as well. So kind of mixing all of my interests together. That's one arm of uh, practice and ministry that I haven't really jumped all the way into yet, but the the bones of that is taking shape. So, yeah. Well, that's wonderful. That's excellent. And since we're here, I, I just want to dig into some of that because you're touching on some subjects uh, in just talking about what you've done in your past that I know people are interested in. I'm definitely interested in. So just just starting out, uh, what what differences do you see when it comes to mental health, when it comes to females and males? I mean, I know there's a million and one books out there that talk about the differences (laughs) between men and women. But when it comes to mental health, what differences do you see between the two the two sexes? So interestingly enough, so I, I will give the caveat that the bulk of my career has been working with people who are kind of at the fringes of what would be expected in mainstream society, right? So I've worked in psychiatric institutions, I've worked in residential treatment facilities, and I've worked in the prison and juvenile justice system. So these are folks who tend to have a great deal of trauma in their history, a great deal of imbalance, uh, don't come from a, a great support system often. So these are the folks who probably have had it the worst in comparison to your general population, right? So keep that in mind (laughs) when listening to my answer. But by and large, in terms of the work that I have done most recently, there is actually not a huge 
difference, right? There's uh, individual difference according to, you know, everybody would assume that, oh, men don't talk that much and women just blurt out everything. And in the therapeutic setting, I have not found that to be the case. I thought that uh, for us in the prison that I work in, I was certain that my therapy sessions would be longer and everything would just be so much more uh, in, in just in depth and women would be ready to jump into their histories. And that has not been the case. And I've actually seen the flip more recently, particularly with uh, the pandemic in the past years and just what's happened in the prison system in particular is like the, uh, I would say the worst case scenario, like we all got locked down, but if you're in prison, you're on a double lockdown, right? Um, I found that the men tended to talk more and my sessions with men got longer and longer. And with the women, they were kind of ready to up and out. What I think is a huge difference is the, readiness and willingness of women to open up with one another. So they may not feel the the same need to do that in therapy because with their support group or their friends, they may talk about their feelings more. They'll talk about their vulnerabilities more. Whereas with men, they may not be as likely to have those conversations with one another. So when they get to my office, you can think in the prison setting, there's very many reasons why you might not be vulnerable with your peer group, right? So when they get to me, it's like a dump of everything. So that's what I found. But I think we can see parallels in society where it's just more adaptive and normal for women to chat it up and have conversations about everything, whereas men might just kind of give a head nod and keep it pushing and uh, you're all right, bruh, and just that's it. (laughs) So um, that's a tendency that I've seen. But largely otherwise, when it comes to experiences that they've been through and how they interpret it and uh, how they internalize it, there's a lot of similarity, probably a lot more similarity that, than people would anticipate. And and I think that that was one of the main things that I saw that was kind of like a, I don't know, maybe like a, a insult to the guys, because, you know, for, for those of you that are listening to the podcast and you don't know exactly what me and Dr. Bowman are talking about right now, originally for the vast majority of my career, the prison that we both work at was a male facility. It has recently been turned into a female facility. But when the men were there, Doc, uh, it just seemed as it seemed as though most people didn't really take their mental health issues seriously. And it appears that people take the women a little more serious to me, from what I can view. And I think that that translates out here in the in the world and in society as well. It's, it appears that most people view men as being more stable, not going through as much mentally and internally. And I think because women appear to demonstrate their emotional uh, issues and their problems more openly, I think that that translates to a lot of people as the men aren't going through stuff or they're not experiencing stuff or they're they're not having crazy thoughts. And I don't think that's always the case, or I don't think that's ever the case. I think men are going through a lot as well. Um, would would you agree with that statement? Or do you do you think that there's there's something else going on? Uh, so there's I think there's a lot of things going on, but I do agree with you. In terms of the outside looking in perception, uh because of the fact that the men tended not to expose. So I think there's multiple reasons why men do not tend to exhibit emotion in the same way as women, right? So even outside of a prison setting, it's just more acceptable. If you see a woman crying about something, oh, let's run to their aid. A man is usually trying to mask that, not being open about it, goes off to their own, takes care of it and comes back. Whereas a woman typically will have or accept that collective 
assistance, support. Uh, men kind of the mentality is, oh, suck it up, be a man. That kind of toxic masculinity going on in, or that has been going on historically in society. Um, that's common and it's, it's, it's accepted in this society anyway. Um, and so in the prison setting, even more so, uh, when you're looking at or thinking about inmates or offenders, uh, you are taking into account more of the crime that they did and that they did this and this and that. So that's a problem and no sympathy and that kind of, I think it's an old school view of the male offender. Um, and yes, we do have, I think on both ends, male and female, you do have people who engage in manipulation and who aren't always honest. But if we really look at the truth of their histories, like I said before, there's not a lot of discrepancy. Um, I think before they switched over to the women, we got a lot of training about trauma. I, we need that training for both genders. <laughs> like most <laughs> of the men went through many of the same things. Will they admit that a woman will more readily say she was beaten by somebody or had some domestic abuse or was abused by a parent than a male would. And there's very often uh, what I saw, it may not have existed in histories or they might not have admitted it in screenings, the men per se, but in therapy at, over time when they felt as if they can disclose information. Yeah. A lot of them disclose a lot of abuse, sexual abuse. That's not okay to talk about in for any gender, but women are more likely to say that that happened to them um, in this setting, in the prison setting that I've seen. So um, experiences probably don't differ a great deal, but what people expect and what people respond to for men and women definitely vary greatly from what I've seen. And 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 that that sounds exactly like uh, what I have witnessed. Uh, inside of the prison that we work at, and I'm sure you've witnessed a lot more outside as you have dealt with clients in many different settings. Uh, but one thing that that tends to to kind of stand out in today's world that I I really really am concerned about is young people, because mental health tends to be a major factor playing out in a lot of the world when it comes down to our youth today. Um, what what differences do you see there that uh, that maybe adults aren't necessarily dealing with, or maybe they are, and they just know a different route of uh, of, of dealing with it? I think today's youth. One thing I noticed, so goodness, it was back in twenty two thousand nine to twenty ten is when I was working in a psychiatric hospital for. Uh, children and uh, adolescents. So it went from, I think the youngest I ever saw in the hospital was age five and the oldest was 18. And it was shocking how many people or young people were brought to the institution with what seemingly seemed based on difficulties surrounding their phone. So, you know, your phone is like a little computer, you can see so much. So whether it was, um, there was a child at one point or a young person who had there's a video of him being circulated, of him getting jumped and beaten up. And that was circulated, circulating around his whole school. That's something to deal with that we never would have had to deal with growing up. Like the people who, if you got jumped or beat up, everybody who was there saw it and that was it. And you, it would fizzle out after the discussion about it ended. Whereas this video can take on a life of its own and exists forever. Um, so things like that, that we, social media plays a huge role in what I saw, uh, access to every type of information at all times. It's overstimulation. It's um, a lot of comparison that, you know, we we did it in our time. Like we had TV, we had uh, magazines and all of these things. But on top of that, now you have it on a phone 
in your room, usually, that you don't get to put down. You know, most of us growing up, you have a, a bedtime. You can't watch that by after this time. Turn off the lights. No more of the book or the magazine or whatever else. But now you have a phone that you can turn on at any time and anything could be going into your mind, into your into your view. And parents don't necessarily know what that is. And, may, you know, kids can hack around a parental control in an instant um, and the parent may not be thinking anything of it. So it's like this constant and consistent access to all kinds of information. Um, I think that was the largest thing that I saw that was not something I was seeing when, you know, working with kids a little earlier than that, the access and the age at which kids have phones now, have smartphones now, um, you know, just availability, having availability for everything. And the fact that communication may be happening via text much more so than via phones, like nobody wants to talk anymore, uh, just send a message. So, um, you know, all of these things, I think, combined contribute. Um, and then what's happening in the world and the fact that we can see what's happening everywhere in the world at one time, it's overwhelming. So if we think about the anxiety that we may be experiencing as adults with access to not only might I be concerned about and worried about what's happening around the corner from me or in my nation, I can look at what's happening in Europe and I can look at what's happening in South Africa and I can look at, you know, and have this uh, very mean world view that can then produce things like anxiety and depression and aggression. So in addition to what we already all have been exposed to and experienced um, when we were younger, for example, this com I believe it's compounded by the access to information that folks now have. Well, that's, that's, that's really, really, really powerful. And to be honest with you, you know, that's something that me and a few of the people that I talk to on a regular basis have tossed around a lot. So I just want to unpack that a little bit. Do you feel like then a solution would be to limit the access that people have to some of the avenues that technology has given them today? Because there's a, I'm sure, um, we all know, there is a community of people that would argue that that infringes on their, their rights and their you know ability to be free to do and see whatever it is that they want to see. But I think that the argument that you're making right now is that that access alone uh, has sort of exacerbated the mental health problems that we have in the country. Is that, that correct? Yes, I do believe that that's the case. And, you know, I think in the ways that uh, some of the things that we talked about with parents, uh, we had an outpatient group and we talked about, you know, taking the phone and having a charging station that's away from the children or creating spaces that are timeouts, like you can't have your phone with you 24 seven. Um, and a lot of that needs to be modeled. So if you're as, if you as a parent are requiring that of your children, you should also do it too, right? So there are times that we need to detach from work. There are times that we need to detach from having our phone on our hip. Um, and so, you know, I don't know how much any real like legal legislation would be helpful, but I think at the very least families on their own should come up with a plan for uh, limiting uh, contact with different media sources, uh, including television, including the computer, maybe having like a device free hours on the weekends and the evenings to have time to sit at the table and talk to one another, to have time to maybe go do something as a family. Um, those kind of practices are things that can increase your 
the appropriate types of things that we need to enhance our mental health and to improve our wellness. So those are all things that we, or if it comes down to it sometimes for those of us who might have on-call uh, duties and phones like and things like that, so it's hard to model those behaviors, making sure you utilize and model um, appropriate practices with the phone. So maybe putting it on mute, muting the um, you know, you may have to have it on you, but I don't need to, if I'm not on call at the moment, then I can respond to something later. So let me just mute it, mute the sound. I can't get any alerts until I'm ready to look at it. Um, different things like that uh, so that you can just detach for a moment. Um, and I think that would be very helpful. You know, uh, yeah. my mentality about, uh, I understand people might feel as if, oh, it's infringing on rights, all of those kind of things. But there's tons of, whether it's research, whether it's uh, people who have created these apps and devices that personally will say they don't permit their own children to use them. That's very telling to me. When right. the creator right. of a smartphone says, I don't let my child have one, that's a clue. <laughs> so um, I, think, I think it's important to kind of really uh, take a good look at why it's so important to have whatever it is people think they need um, and reevaluate that, particularly if you are noticing some changes in yourself or your children uh, that you don't want to be something that persists. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was having a conversation with somebody a few months back and we were talking about the probably the most influential inventions of our lifetimes. And I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's so many, but I, I swear to you, the cell phone and that technology has to have changed how we communicate in so many ways at so many levels. I, I remember when, you know, you had to basically be home to have a conversation with somebody. Mm -hmm. Now, now, you know, we can talk wherever we are. You know, you can be hundreds of miles away. I can see you on my phone. I can talk to you. You can send me pictures of what you're doing. And, and social media has just blown everything up. So I, I think that your suggestions are by far very, very, very sound. And I, I would employ anybody that's listening Anybody that's interested in trying to help out the mental health of their family and their children to do that. Um, so now, Doc, I'm about to get a little controversial. You mind? <laughs> I'm good. You know, it's the I'm about to dig in a little bit. Um, <laughs> so I'm an African-American. Doc, you're an African-American. We clearly can see the troubles of our community um, each and every day. What significant mental health elements do you think that our community is suffering from and how do you think we can we can fix those things? Yeah, that's a loaded question, right? So I, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> first and foremost, I don't even know if there's an order I can go in, but the first thing that comes to mind for me and uh, certain things that I used to actually as an undergraduate and graduate student would research um, was the impact of discrimination or perceived uh, discrimination on the development of negative behaviors. And we did find direct correlations with perceiving that you're being discriminated against. And I was looking at problem behaviors. Other research showed that it does increase depression. It does uh, reduce physical, uh, it causes increased health problems. So if you're perceiving that for some, for, because of your color, 
that people are treating you differently uh, that will lead to problems on all ends, mental health, physical health, all of it. Mm. Lots of research to find, to, to support that. Um, and so that's just even our own perceptions, right? That doesn't right, include right. when things actually happen where that's clear, right? So we know that we just came out of 2020 where some things that have been going on for centuries are just now being brought to light. And so when that happens, and you see things like that happen for, for us within the community that has been seeing it for ever. Um, it does become, there's this uh, learned helpless, hurt, learned helplessness is what we call it in depression. If you feel like no matter what you do, the outcome's always going to be the same. It leads to depression oh, wow. because no matter what I do, this is what the outcome is. So that's something that uh, kind of struggling against that on a regular basis as a person, I will just say generally a person of color, but yes, I'm African-American. My, my parentage is actually Jamaican. So there's also those layers of cultural differences in different locations. Um, and so that we also have in-group problems where colorism is an issue and sometimes, uh, you know, discrimination against different groups. So if you're from America versus if you're from Jamaica, if you're from Haiti, if you're from an African country, those kind of things, there's this in-group division as well sometimes. Uh, so there's it's, it's as if struggles come on all ends, right? Um, the other factor that I have noticed, and I think it's take come a long way in terms of people discussing more. I know more people who are personally in therapy themselves, but there was a long time that our culture was not in agreement with the thought that uh, getting help for your mental health problems was something that was necessary. Um, it was actually often shy to, uh, you know, talked about as if it was a problem, particularly in the Christian community. Uh, the Black Christian community would kind of shy away from getting help for any mental health issues, whether it was because the belief was, well, just pray it away, or that's demonic, or whatever label we would put on it, but actually thinking about going and sitting down and seeing someone and maybe getting medication for a problem, it was it seemed as if that's not okay. That's not something that we do. And I think that comes from a lot of different things over time. But even perceptually, uh, if you think back historically to the idea that, you know, uh, African-Americans are well-bred to not have problems. So physically and mentally, we're sturdy, we're strong. So even when you go to a, a, a professional, whether mental health or uh, for physical concerns, it's not seen with the same level of uh, intensity or, or problem as other groups. Or it's the flip side. It's magnified. So. Tons of times, and I've seen it in, in our system, folks who display certain symptoms, it's they're quicker to be diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder uh, than any other community, uh, African-Americans. So when the behavior seems as if there's some acting out uh, involved, then that's the jump to, um, rather than looking at, huh, could this be trauma related? Could this be anxiety? Could this be depression? So there's a lot of different factors going on that is, you know, not always in our favor. But what I have seen kind of turn the tide recently is the acknowledgement that, wow, we can use help and we can benefit from assistance in getting better. Well, let's 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 stay right here, because I, I think that this is this is something that we definitely need to touch on, because I'm a Christian and um, you, of course, are a Christian and we both attend uh, churches and have. Uh, communities that are a subculture of society itself. How how do you think mental health is viewed in the Christian community 
And do I mean what what special elements are there that we need to pay attention to? Because like you said, a lot of people a lot of people take the position of you know praying away or or whatever the case may be, and just kind of give us some information on on that as it particularly pertains to Christianity. Okay, so what I have seen, and you know, just as a as an aside, I currently attend a church that is very diverse. And so I've seen the attention that's paid to mental health and the discussion about it is very different from the churches that I've attended prior, which were predominantly black. So I grew up in a Caribbean church. Um, and when I was in my adulthood, I went to an African-American church that was mostly folks that were from the South that had migrated to the North. Um, so there's different cultural things that you'll see in all of that as well. But what I can recall from growing up and even just, you know, you have conversations with uh, older Christians, right? Um, The first uh, the first comment about certain behaviors is more of a spiritual one. Right. So, you know, it's spiritual warfare or it's a demon, it's demonic presence. So pray about that. Get the oil, all of those things and not discounting uh, people who believe that aspect of spirituality and you know, address things in that way. But to me, there's a both and component. I think we've come a long way in terms of physical health. People, I know Christians of every age that go to their doctors and will get testing for cancer, will get screened for kidney problems, everything else. So we are aware that there can be stuff going on with you physically that's not a demon. It can be well treated by your medical professionals. Mental health is lagged behind in this in the the Christian community. And I I can only specify in the black Christian community that I've seen it, it's coming a long way. I have seen a lot of efforts uh, in the Christian community. And again, that also goes back to things like social media and the proximity of receiving information. Cause there was a, I feel like there was a stretch of time where we saw more and more pastors who were committing suicide and all of these things happening. And so the conversation became more uh, pertinent. I don't think that's that that's never happened before, but we have access to finding out when it happens now much more readily because of things like social media. So I think there's a heightened recognition that, wow, this is a problem that we could possibly benefit from treatment for. I think there's still a large resistance to medication for mental health issues. Um, But I think also in African-American history, uh, if we look at some of the things that had been done medically to the African-American population, you can see that hesitancy to get medication for kind of anything, right? Um, Concerns about being mishandled or mistreated. And like I said before, you may be misdiagnosed for ages and being prescribed medication that you shouldn't have. So it's really important to um, recognize the reasons for trepidation in that area. But also I think there have been major strides where people are more so having the conversation, uh, whether or not they would be comfortable thinking about themselves and those close to them in that capacity. So I think it's more of an openness where it's not the same level of judgment. If sister so-and-so on the other row has been going to therapy and you, you know, it's not as we don't judge that person as much, but when it comes close to home, I think there still is that resistance of, uh, do we really need to bring little Johnny to the doctor for this? He just has a lot of energy, you know? (laughs) So, um, and, and a lot of times, we fail to get services that could be helpful and beneficial because we don't want to be stigmatized. And um, particularly with our children and, and young adults, these are things that having an IEP in school can be helpful. And uh, I think uh, the, the majority culture, 
recognized that years ago and sometimes seek out those services for kids who don't need it because, hey, why not get my child extra time on the test? Uh, but these, I think, in the African-American community, we kind of hesitate to identify problems because it might cause more problems. And that's because when you really think about it, it's trauma history informing current decision making. And it's like a cultural trauma that kind of shapes what we think about things. So um, it's understandable, but it, it needs to continue changing. But I, I'm a hopeful person and I have seen how change has occurred even over the past few years. Well, that's great because I, I know and I, I definitely can relate to what you're saying. Um, it's, there's definitely a hesitance uh, a lot of times because people are afraid of what's going to be said or how they're going to feel or this. And, you know, it's really sad that we fall into situations like that, especially in a church community or a church uh, church organization, because technically, you know, that's supposed to be where we seek refuge and a lot of times those are the locations that are the most harsh in their criticism of what you're doing and what you're trying to do. So I, I totally understand the hesitancy that people may have in certain areas there. But just, you know, kind of digging a little deeper into what I'm asking. So in 2015, uh, Dylan Roof went to Charleston and shot up an entire church congregation. And when we look at the mass shootings and gun violence in America, we are all trying our best to wrap our heads around what to do, how to do this and how to do that. But I remember specifically that one of the immediate responses that the media and many of the people that were surrounding that community said was that there was a mental health element to what that young man did. Um, I, I kind of see some hypocrisy when it comes down to these shootings that are going on regularly, but you're a mental health expert. So what do you, how do you feel? How do you break that down? And when it comes down to all of the shootings that have happened since then, before then, of people just going into locations and just opening fire at schools and churches, malls what what's going on there i think you know there's definitely layers and layers and i i do not purport to be an expert that can understand what's happening in the minds of these individuals right but from my perspective the tendency for society to lean into the mental health conversation when the assailant uh is looks a certain way uh, we see the difference. We do see the difference. Um, however, I would say across the board, folks who have the capacity to do that, there are a number of things that could be happening, right? So if if we see that it's kind of, uh, I don't think that many of the ones that we've seen in, in the recent past have been folks who are uh, psychotic or disorganized or have uh, any mental health issues that would prevent them from participating in their own defense at a trial, right? So they're not uh, incompetent, right? They're not uh, perhaps uh, have any intellectual disability where they didn't understand because typically it took a level of planning and getting prepared. So there's something, I, I wouldn't deny that they have a mental health disorder, but it is important to recognize, and I think this would help people understand mental health issues, uh, that concept of crazy, that sometimes people will say as a dismissive thing or as an insult, 
It's not accurate in most mental health issues. So if a person is depressed, that doesn't mean that it makes it can be an explanation. I often say this to my clients. The explanation for something is not an excuse. So it doesn't excuse behavior just because I can explain that it happened because of this, this and that. Because if that was the case, then nobody should be in prison. And I know there are some people who argue that. But in general, there's no retribution for any crime because there's usually an explanation for for something. Right. Right. But if you are of the if you have the capacity to plan, get your weapons together, do all these things, sit in the back of a church or sit amongst the people and still be able to go ahead and shoot them. Your your concept about those people is disordered, but it's not necessarily a diagnosable mental health disorder. But your ability to see them as maybe animals or as people that don't need to be living, uh, there's something wrong. But again, like I said, I might not say that the person was bipolar or they were schizophrenic or any of those things. They might not have any mental health disorder other than what we call antisocial personality disorder, meaning that when that person has a mindset about something and it needs to be done, they're able to just go ahead and do it. And some people with antisocial personality disorder or elements of it uh, can be really successful and tend to be good businessmen because they can make decisions and do what they need to do despite other people's feelings. But when it goes the wrong way, those folks can kill people without regret in the moment, right? So uh, there are those are the kinds of things that I think, I think there's usually more personality traits and disorders that we see among people that engage in those behaviors, but it's not anything that makes them unable to function in society, which is typically why nobody suspects that it was them or after the fact, people can look back and say, yeah, that person was weird or they were odd or they, they got closed off in the past couple years. But typically it's, There's probably a leaning towards some type of problem. So some history of uh, whether it's something in their upbringing or something that they kind of latched onto information that they found that they uh, just delved into. So, you know, if, if somebody jumps into the teachings of Hitler for some reason and that's what they're focused on, then they start to see groups of people as not worth living and they're able to do what we might do with a bug or, you know, if we're hunting. And right, think of it right. in the same way, you know, and that doesn't. So, you know, somebody <laughs> depend and, and because of our views in society, um, I think I don't know that there's necessarily an answer. I'm I'm not uh, I, I'm not a, a person that kind of jumps to legislation. But I do think it's interesting when we look at other nations that don't have the kind of mass shootings that we have or the gun control issues that we have. Um, there's just different strategies for making sure that people who have weapons are people that should have weapons and that access differs for certain certain things that would raise red flags. <laughs> you shouldn't right, be right. able to get access. And I do believe in that. And I don't believe it's a limitation of freedom because we see that the availability and the freedom that we do have has led to such um, significant problems. And so I think it's interesting when people want to mention mental health but if you think of in entirety in our nation like what kind of how healthy are we in general if we are more willing to espouse freedom rather than lives of children and innocent people uh for what you know there's been there's been more than enough examples of why there should be something else happening not saying oh take away everybody's guns not at all but there should be some it should be a little more difficult to get one i would say <laughs> Well, and just, I mean, just to just kind of touch on that, because, you know, just the fact that we just recently said in this very same conversation that there's so much 
uh, access that people have to technology and things and being able to see things going on around the world and in their own communities. Do you think we ignore the signs of some of these issues that people are having, you know, prior to some type of major catastrophic meltdown that causes them to shoot up an area? Because every single one of these shootings that I've paid attention to so far, there's always been that element that comes later on where they find Facebook posts and emails and messages. And there's always that kid in the school that says, yeah, I always thought something was wrong with him. And, you know, all of that should have been signs. But did we just did we just blanket over those or or is that some type of sickness that we have? As a society, as a society, uh, what do you think? So I think there's a couple of things that happen in those instances, right? So for one, um, I think as a society, as you know, as our society grows, I think we're more closed off. You know, I'm from New York originally. Um, I don't even actually really know my neighbors. I'm going to be honest. Uh, it's just not my nature to get to know people around me. I'm I'm in my in my place. And when I get in here, I'm in here. Right. So I'm not really being friends. I don't know folks. People can move in and I don't know who it is. These kind of things that happens for me. Right. That's me. Um, so just not being aware of who's around you. So can't really comment one way or the other. Say we step a take it. Say I were to take a step and get to know folks. There's a face that we all put on for certain audiences. And right. that is the truth. Right. So, um, you know, if you see something that might be a little bit odd in somebody because we're only cordial, that might not be something that I would address in any meaningful way. Okay. Uh, moving beyond taking a step beyond that, sometimes it's not always uh, responded to well when we bring up the problems that we see. Right. So uh, whether you try to reach out to someone and say, hey, I noticed this about you or you go to surrounding people and say, hey, I noticed this about this person. Number one, the way a lot of our systems function, there's not there's not a lot that can be done until something happens. And that's just how our systems operate. Right. right. So you can see signs of something and you can say here's a problem, here's an issue, but there's nothing that we can actually do about that. So when I, if I see somebody post something that I'm like, uh, that's scary. There's not a whole lot that, there's not really a, an action set up that I can take, right? right. Uh, right. To, to prevent further discussion like that, especially if it's not somebody that I know or have a relationship. Um, I think there's a lot of instances, particularly when we see folks that do things like this on a job, where, you know, there might have been some HR complaints or there might have been some write-ups in a system, but those things are kind of sealed and they don't necessarily get passed along. And the key people that need to know about them may not be aware of them for good reasons, because there's laws and things that protect folks. But all of those things with that knowledge or with some awareness, perhaps the person could have used some more support. Um, so I, I think in general, the in answer to your question, the, the sickness that I see is that there's not a whole lot of options for obtaining mental health wellness checks unless there's something wrong. And I think that's a problem. We shouldn't be leaning on the side of um, when something happens. If we thought about having preventive measures and doing things that were just incorporated, whether it's incorporate certain things into a work day or a school day that builds up mental health and positivity. Uh, rather than all we do is tear down when the problem begins. So, you know, if a kid start acting out in school, uh, they're getting punished immediately. There's not really a lot of work that's done to maybe create a better support system so that they can have a different outlet. 
Um, if a kid is turning inward to themselves, we just may not notice because there's so many other things going on. We can't tell. If you think about the work setting, there might be whispers and jokes about the person that acts strange until the day they come and shoot up the place. Right. So there's not a lot of uh, fit. We can make suggestions. If people know people, they can have conversations, but there's not really systems in place that uh, allow for people to take care of themselves without being identified as problematic. And so that in and of itself is a, is an issue. Right. Right. And I, I, I totally understand everything you're saying. I, I really, really, really connect to that because I see a lot of it inside of the, the, the schools and, and outside of school, I've got, I've got a lot of kids <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, they all have different experiences when it comes down to the school system but the one unique thing that they all tend to see or run into is this whole epidemic of bullying that tends to, you know, kind of make a child feel a certain way. And I can see people ignoring certain things to try to pass through the day or chalk things up as just, you know, whatever a child goes through. And I could see that stuff kind of, you know, building on their psyche, uh, building on them internally and just you know, festering there until eventually there's some big explosion. Um, so I'm going to ask you a really, really blunt question. And, you know, I, I really want you to expand, expand on it, but do you feel that racism is a mental health issue? Hmm. So I can see arguments for both ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, actually have seen people that began researching uh, the examination of having these prejudices as that being diagnosable mental health disorders. But the difficulty with that is that because there is a, so I'll just um, kind of separate the way I see things and the way I've studied. Um, so racism in the sense of, so, so everybody will think that, um, you know, racism is something that everybody can be racist against somebody else. And I disagree with that. So racism has to do with power structure. Uh, And so that the the level of everybody can be discriminatory against one another in some way, shape or form. So I might not let you sit with me if I don't, you know, whether it's how you look or whatever the case may be, whatever I'm discriminating against. But in terms of racism, there's a power structure that's in place. So People that are in positions of power, which in our nation happens to just be uh, the white culture, which may not be the majority culture for a much longer time, but still power dynamics make a difference. And that aspect of that race having the ability to uh, kind of make differences in what happens and uh, the, like the change makers in society. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll start from from kind of that point. So if we look at it as if. Thoughts about your group being supreme and uh, having attributes that are better than others innately based off of your genetic makeup. There is an argument to say that that's delusional in nature. Right. But the other thing about mental health disorders is that there has to be significant functional impairment in multiple areas. Right. So can you not 
do your job? Can you not make money? Can you not uh, take care of yourself in some significant way? So when we see depression, yeah, everybody might have feelings of sadness, but do you take care of yourself? Are you taking care of your hygiene? Are you taking care? So these are the kind of things that we talk about functioning. Are you able to function daily? And so any problem that you have, any symptoms that you may have, it doesn't rise to the occasion of a uh, it doesn't rise to the occasion of a, a mental health disorder unless you have significant functional impairment. That's the phrase that makes the difference between having some symptoms and having a disorder. Same way, if I sneeze right now, that doesn't mean I have COVID. Right. There's, a number, there's a number of symptoms that have to be met. And then you have this, you know, there's tests that you can take and all these different things. So in mental health, that, that test that shows the, the significant decider is your functional impairment. So um, most people who have racist beliefs can function in right. other aspects of their life without any limitations. Uh, so the argument kind of stops. Now, when you get to that delusional point where perhaps people are, um, you know, engaging in significant, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if people are getting, so if we think about some of the people like a Dylan Roof might have at the expense of his ability to hold down a job might've been studying where I can go to uh, get rid of these African-American people, right? So they right. couldn't operate or function because they were doing those things. But it's arguable again, because if you have the capacity to make appropriate decision-making and you are aware of what's the difference between right and wrong, we're not talking about delusions at that point. We're not talking about psychosis or you know, some significant problems that limit your ability to make important decisions. So um, I can see why people would say, oh, it has to be a mental health disorder. It is a mental health issue. Um, it's a belief system that, you know, limits your ability to see people equally and can probably limit a lot of other things, but how much uh, impairment and functioning is there? Wow. Well, since you touched on it, because you mentioned COVID, um, that's the big monster in the room right now that's affecting just about everything and has for about two and a half, three years. Yep. Um, so can you give me just what you've seen as far as like an uptick in mental health when it comes down to COVID? Uh, has the lockdowns affected people? Um, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk out there. I mean, there's, there's a million talking heads. You can turn to any news station, any radio station, and they've got some expert on there talking about how COVID is this, how COVID is that. But just from your own your own life, what you've experienced, how has COVID affected the mental health world? Okay, so I mean, definitely have seen the research out there where you know there have been folks that have been collecting data and do see, yeah, there's definitely limitations. So in any instance where we see people. Uh, being unable to do what they typically do, uh, we see changes in functioning, right? Again, going back to that functional impairment, right? So if you're used to being able to go out and meet with people, um, you're used to being able to, to hug people, you're used to being able to, there's all kinds of contact that was reduced. Uh, there's all kinds of interaction that was reduced. So there's definitely been an uptick in more depressive symptoms, definitely higher anxiety, worry about 
you know, health and wellness, being concerned about, like I said, every every sneeze being COVID, every cough, oh my gosh, am I going to die? That's very scary. Um, and I think early on, there was a, a lot of that. Right now, we're coming into, we've heard the phrase, the the uh, the, the fatigue that everybody's developed, um, just having to deal with uh, pandemic regulations and things like that. And so sometimes decision-making not being as great because you're just tired of following the rules. And so let me just not do what I'm you know, I've been told to do or what I know I should be doing because, you know, it's, it's just been too long now. So um, we have all of that. There has definitely been, uh, well, research has shown there's been some uptick in uh, suicidal behaviors. There's been uh, some uptick. We've seen like domestic violence and things like that. So you just have people in enclosed spaces. There does tend to be more reactivity in one way, shape or form. And whether that's inward or outward, it is happening. Um, as time goes on, I think some things have improved from what I see, but uh, there still is this level of, I think a great part of it is grief and loss. So even in dealing with just the loss of being able to do what you once did, but also many people have lost people during this time period more so than in the past. So you're dealing with usually, and what I have seen just even amongst friends, don't even need to stretch to the, the people that I work with in therapy just thinking about family and friends who have, I don't know anybody who has not lost somebody in the past three years right. due to COVID right. I, personally, as far as like my friend group. Um, and then people, of course, passing from other things, um, but also just being very, you know, not natural deaths that we would, you know, that, that I've seen an increase in that don't know whether it's COVID related or not, might never know, but people that had other conditions dying younger than anticipated or things like that. So you have a lot of that going on. And so that grief and loss over and over again, uh, it can wear down on people in such a way that there is this compassion fatigue that can happen as well. So we become kind of desensitized uh, to, to certain levels of grief and right. don't really get to grieve well before we have to grieve something else. So there's a lot of layers and, and, and compounding of emotion that if we aren't really taking time to process it and deal with it, it impacts all of us. It causes stress for all of us. I think there will be for years and years to come, we will see the the impact of this uh, on all of us and, and particularly children that are growing up in a time where, you know, masks are necessary and you're supposed to stay six feet away from each other. And, you know, there's probably a whole lot of, I, I think I saw, uh, it was supposed to be funny, like a kid that went to a grocery store for the first time and they looked horrified, but really you're coming from, I'm always in my house to now right. here's all this stimulation. And that's hard. It's a hard adjustment. Every teacher I know has talked about how it's been a very unique year as they're coming back to full-time school in person. Um, and so many more fights and kids just misbehaving and the kids that have disabilities and problems acting out more and it just being very heightened. So, you know, a lot of, I know a lot of school counselors and teachers and they've all, they don't know each other and they're in different states and they're saying the same thing. So I think it's been rough on everybody. And I think that we'll, the, the outcome of this is, is going to be ongoing. It's not just going to end whenever the, the epidemic or pandemic ends. It's going to, we're going to see the impact of it for years and years to come. And, and I, don't, I, don't think, uh, I don't think it's a misconception for me to say that there, there can't be anyone in any corner of the world that we know at least uh, that hasn't been affected by COVID in some way. And it just, 
it just continues. And I understand the fatigue myself. Um, I understand people not wanting to to be locked up in their homes and just constantly being told that they can't do this, they can't do that. You have to wear a mask. You have to do it. It's just it, it has to be very stressful for a lot of people. Um, I tell people all the time that, you know, the COVID crisis really didn't affect me as far as my movement much because, I mean, as you know, as soon as COVID hit, I just continued going to work. You know, that the whole essential employee thing. Yep. <laughs> you know, that was, there was no lockdown for me, but at the same time, um, you can look around and, and it's like a ghost town sometimes. So right. to get back into the mix, I definitely understand that that probably gave a lot of trauma to a lot of different people. Okay, Doc, so I have literally tried to reach in every little corner of your mind <laughs> in this conversation. So this is the last formal question that I have for you. But we we tend to spend a lot of time focusing on the the physical harm that people do to themselves as far as a, a mental health issue. I know we do it our job and I know people do in society, but I've dealt with a lot of people in my life that have caused themselves to experience mental and emotional spiritual trauma continuously, um, whether it's an abusive relationship or uh, whether it's a, a, a household where every day is just, you know, warfare. For someone to subject themselves to internal uh, internal damage, or whether it be emotional or mental, can we really consider that a mental health issue, or are there mental health elements for that? Absolutely, I think so. I think in and this this conversation or this discussion can really help. I think people understand, wrap their head around. I think if we started turning the conversation towards mental wellness. Cause I think every time you hear the term mental health, it has a negative com connotation. And that's not the case. Like mental health is the health of our minds, right? So anytime we're engaging or exposed to unhealthy or toxic things, that just detracts from our mental wellness. And so there are things we can do to improve our mental wellness, but sometimes we can get stuck in certain patterns or behaviors or relationships or whatever, uh, the descriptor is not because we have a mental illness per se, we may not have a mental health disorder, but there's some disordered thinking happening that allows us to, whether it's stay in bad situations or engage in behaviors that harm us. And the perspectives that we take and the way that we look at things, that does have to do with our mental health and wellness, but there might not be a disorder that I can pinpoint when you're engaging in X, Y, and Z behavior. And I think a lot of people who are kind of uh, uh, feel negative about the whole concept or the discussion about mental health is because it seems like, you know, in their mind, it seems like people are trying to make excuses for behavior. But I think that there's a level of understanding that we have to have of the many factors that contribute to mental health problems or problematic thinking. Um, that we do need to take into account. And so I think it's something that I've, we've done in trainings as well, but if, if folks wanna take a look at something called um, 
aces. And it's it's just kind of these questions that you can look at. And if, if these events have happened to you or if you've experienced these things, you have a higher likelihood of experiencing um, more problematic, um, you know, wellness in all areas, not just mental health, but also uh, physical health. So, um, and that's just stressful. If you really want to boil it down, it's just stress, stressful life events that people face. Um, and, it, you know, research has been being done on this for years, but a lot of people will think, oh, well, if I, I experience this and I'm fine, or I've gone through this and I'm fine, but there's usually some strategy or way of thinking that folks take on that they may not recognize as problematic, right? Um, Mm. And then the other piece of it is if you have done well, despite having so many things happen, there is a number of protective factors that we kind of take for granted. So having um, loving parents in the home, or if you didn't have both parents having adult figures um, around you that could buffer against some of the hardships that you face, uh, having a good community. Those of us, you know, we we're talking about church for a long time. Having a church family can substitute for some of the ills of not having close family members, um, things of that nature. So there is definitely um, so much that can be said for folks that tend to engage in problematic behaviors or, or what can be termed or thought of as self-harm, right? So we, we see self-harm in one way in, in our place of work, right? People might actually be cutting or harming themselves in that way. But you also have, like you mentioned, if people are excessively using substances or using illegal substances, all of these things go back to like, what are you looking at it as? And most people will not think that they're doing anything wrong to themselves. They're usually trying to do something to make themselves feel better. And whether or not that is actually the case, you know, depending on who you ask, they'll have a different response. Like, this doesn't actually hurt me. I think if you ask somebody who regularly drinks a whole lot of alcohol every night, it's like, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with this. And somebody else who doesn't drink at all is going to look at that person like, wow, you're really sick. So I think for, for all of us, everybody probably has some level of a vice or thing that they do that's not the healthiest for them. Um... And that doesn't necessarily mean anyone has a or that everyone who does those things has a mental health disorder. But we could probably all benefit from uh, engaging in practices that will improve our mental wellness. Wow. Wow. Well, that that is absolutely great information. Doc. And I really, really feel like there are people that are listening that have listened to this whole podcast and are going to walk away with a much better understanding of mental health and maybe even get some type of inspiration to reach out in events where they may need some assistance here or there. So really quickly, Doc, I, I just want you to kind of tell people, you know, what where you can be reached, um, what uh, you have available out there. I know you have your book out there. I'm sure people may want to try to, to grab a copy. Um, if, if the floor is yours, just, you know, put yourself out there. Okay. So, uh, easiest way to probably see what I have going on is to go to marvellabowman.com. Uh, and that's M-A-R-V as in Victor, E-L-L-A-B-O-W-M-A-N.com. Uh, for those who are Facebook users, I have a Facebook page under Marvella A. Bowman. Um, I was doing a, a pretty regular series called Safe Space, but I took a bit of a hiatus due to a death in the family. And I probably will just do different um, 
aspects of that, but what Safe Space is designed to do is to have these kind of conversations. So each month I would select uh, different, there might be a different leaning to it or there might be a different topic, but the general question that I was asking any of my guests was, how are you feeling? How are you coping? And what are your next steps towards wellness? So just answering those three questions and the the, there's always been a lot of great discussion that comes out of those. So um, I might pick those back up in the next year. Um, I did recently just do a session with a specific group. So if folks are interested in having one of their groups, I did it by Zoom because those folks were actually all over the country. So um, there are different opportunities, even if we're not going to see each other in person because of a pandemic or do any physical conferences. There's also, you know, those are the times that the social media and uh, the technology that we have can be a blessing. Um, also, again, just uh, the book, uh, you can see that front on my website. But if you just prefer to go to Amazon, it's available there, uh, content consistent and conformed. And it's a book of devotionals for the believer with the heart after God. So that is Christian focus, but I'm sure anybody of any uh, religion or belief system can get something out of it. It was really just some musings and um, reflections on scriptures that I had over the years that I just compiled and put into a book. So that's kind of what I have going on most recently. Um, and like I said, I have been kind of on a, a bit of a hiatus, even though I've been at, at work work, but uh, my little side hustles, I haven't been focusing on as much but I'll probably hop back into that in 2021. So you can definitely stay tuned on Facebook and through my website. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Bowman, thank you so much for coming through today to talk with me on the show. I'm definitely going to have you back. I'm sure I'm going to pick your brain on something totally different, but we are definitely looking forward to talking with you and seeing you again. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you guys take care. I love you.